Welcome back, listeners. This week is part one of our interview with Sanford Johnson, an education policy advocate in Clarksdale, Mississippi. The first part of our conversation focuses on how he found his way into the educational reform movement in the Delta and the changes he's seen in the area over the last 15 years. Plus, we talk about how Sanford became a viral video star and how to wear socks. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. We are here this morning in Clarksdale, Mississippi with Sanford Johnson, who is not only um, just an excellent person and education activist in Mississippi, but it's also my long-term friend. We have known each other, now I'm telling people our age, 20 years? Yeah. Yeah. Which does not seem possible, but we met, and every listener is going to groan right now because this is the part where I start to make this just a basically an about Auburn podcast, not an about South podcast. There's going to be so much Auburn in this so podcast. So much Auburn. <laughs> we met at Auburn when we were undergrads. I don't remember how or when we met, but we were just kind of in the same circle of students who yeah. cared about justice issues at the university, student government, just trying to make the university a better place for everybody. And that was about 10% or less of the student body. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't, right? Was it? 12 to 15. We were a tight-knit group. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put it in the positive. Yes. Yes. We were very close. I know you have done so much work since we left Auburn, you were in Teach for America, you came, you grew up in Mississippi, you came back to Mississippi, and you had done so much work with educational reform, and then you had that video go viral, which we'll talk about, and I just thought, before I finish this podcast, I really want to talk to Sanford about his work, because um, you're just one of the folks, I think, when we've all watched each other go do things, it's been really interesting to follow your career. And I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you. And it, it, it's a pleasure to reconnect and um, be able to catch up on all the great work that you're doing at uh, Georgia State and to get into the podcast and see that I love to see my Auburn people doing well. So Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. excited. And um, had so much fun catching up with you last night. And we relived so many different stories and it was hilarious. I, I reached out to some of my roommates and told them, you will never believe like who I ran into. Oh, my God. <laughs> just sharing old stories. It's been good. It's been good. Oh, good. I yeah. know. I mean, uh, yeah, like I said, it's like a it's like a small, it was like a small group of people who yeah. kind of all paid attention to what each other were doing. Sometimes yeah. we were campaigning with each other. Sometimes <laughs> we were campaigning against each other. Yeah. yeah. All, in, all, all in fun, though. Yeah. Government big, nerds. Big family. Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. So to get started with um, your work since then, how did you become involved in educational reform in Mississippi? And maybe even outlining kind of for us 15 years ago when you started this, 17 years ago, this journey, um, where did Mississippi stand in, towards, in terms of education? Why 
and how did you get involved in this question and having been educated in Mississippi? So to start the conversation, um, I grew up in Mississippi, um, spent the first half of my childhood in the Mississippi Delta, spent the second half in Starkville. My parents were professors at Mississippi State. I decided that I definitely wanted to leave home to go to college, and I eventually found my way at Auburn, found my way to Auburn. Um, and so ran for student body president and lost and was trying to figure out, okay, what is my next adventure going to be? Um, I thought I was going to Capitol Hill. I wanted to do an internship up there. Uh, did not really hear back from anybody from Mississippi. So I, I eventually found out about this uh, opportunity to work for Senator Cochran, uh, Senator Thad Cochran here in Mississippi. So I came back. I connected with a high school friend of mine. Um, and we were both working in Jackson that summer. And during that summer, I got a chance to work with elected officials. I got to talk to educators. I got to talk to, you know, just community leaders. And by the end of that summer, I was so pro-Mississippi, it was just mind-blowing. Um, and this is somebody who thought that I was leaving and was never coming back. But making those connections, I felt like, oh, there's so many issues in Mississippi that need to be fixed, and I need to figure out how to get back there and do this work. Um, I still thought that the best way to do that work was to go to Capitol Hill. So I was going to try to, okay, I can work for the senator, I can work on issues related to Mississippi, and I can just keep my, my eyes focused on the state while I'm in D.C. But um, a friend of mine um, from high school told me about Teach for America, and I ended up applying, and for some reason, it just felt like the thing that I needed to do. So, yeah, just applied, and that's what that's what officially started everything. Um, I taught for four years. I eventually, you know, co-founded an education policy organization, and here I am right now. When you applied for Teach for America, did you request to come to the Delta, or was that good luck that you came here? So I I applied uh, to be in the Delta. In fact, that was my top choice, second choice, third choice. Uh, there were some other places around the South that I was sort of interested in, but I wanted to be in the Delta, and I thought that Teach for America was gonna be what brought me to the Delta. And what issues was the Delta having in terms of education then? So back then, I mean, across the board, we were underperforming uh, when you compared Mississippi to the rest of the country. When you looked at our low-income students, we were some of the lowest-performing low-income students. Even when you looked at students who were in wealthier communities, those students, compared to their peers in other states, they were low-performing. So there was a major problem with uh, our standards weren't high enough. Um, we weren't bringing enough of our best and brightest into the classroom. We weren't expecting enough for our kids. We were not putting in enough resources, especially in our most impoverished areas. So just across the board, there was a lot of stuff that needed to be fixed. Um, and that was one of the things that we noticed. Um, you know, my friend and I um, will continue to have conversations around education, uh, the same conversations that we were having in the summer of 2002. And um, during those conversations, we realized that we need to continue to do this work, even if we're not going to stay in the classroom. And that's what eventually led us to start an education policy organization. And what were your goals for that organization? And how does someone, okay, you start out your first year teacher, you're in Teach for America, you taught for four years, which is longer than a lot of the tenure for people for Teach for America. Yeah. 
and you didn't leave the community, you still live here. How do you even get your head around that? Like we're gonna tackle Mississippi education, which does not have a great reputation nationally. How did you even start? Like where do you start with something like that? So at the time we were a staff of two and uh, worked on a couple of different issues that we thought there was some progress, but there needed to be a policy group that could work on getting this issue over the hump. So around um, charter school policy, around sex ed policy, around pre-kindergarten, like we didn't have state funded pre-kindergarten at the time. We didn't have a charter law. Um, sex ed at the time was a, it was an if then bill. Like if you're gonna do sex ed, then it has to be abstinence only. And there were a lot of districts that weren't doing any sex ed at all. Um, the district where I was teaching uh, around here, the only sex ed that my kids got for the entire year was this one program where somebody came in and talked to them about abstinence and condoms don't work. So be abstinent and that's all they got. Meanwhile, like this is a district where when we started this work, the teen birth rate in Coahoma County was over a hundred pregnancies for per 1,000 uh, teenage girls. So 10% of teenage girls are getting pregnant on it because but, abstinence and teenagers don't naturally go together a lot of times. It's an ineffective policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I've often said that uh, it's abstinence is very effective if you're committed to it, but a policy that relies exclusively on getting kids to wait to have sex until they're married it's it's a proven failure right <laughs> yeah, like, it, like it doesn't work it doesn't work yeah, it's uh, not proper, that condoms don't work abstinence only education does yeah, not it work. just doesn't work it doesn't work because you're leaving kids with very little information when they become sexually active and um yeah so we focused a lot on creating a more comprehensive approach to sex ed which still includes abstinence but also includes medically accurate information about sexually transmitted diseases, like how you can reduce your risk, how you can use condoms effectively and consistently. So that was one of the issues that we worked on. Most of our listeners, if they know who you are already, have probably seen you from the video that has gone viral a number of times. Um, it was on John Oliver last week tonight. I would like to say that I knew you first before you were famous. Um, but so can you explain the video for people who haven't heard it, what it was, how it came about, and then what happened to your life when that went, continued to go viral? Although I realize a sex ed video and go viral, it feels like two phrases that shouldn't be used together. <laughs> You're right. It's funny because there was so little effort that went into making that video. <laughs> so, like, if it's I like on someone's phone, right? Right. Like, yeah. if I tr if I tried to do something, like, I want to create a video that's going to go viral. Like, I don't think I could possibly do something like that. But just so so, what really happened? Um, the way our sex ed law is uh, designed in Mississippi, you can't do condom demonstrations. Uh, and there are some restrictions on condom instruction. Can you say the word condom? You can. Okay. You can. And, you know, during trainings, I try to say it as often as I possibly can. Right. Um, so 
we had this group to come in. Uh, we were using a curriculum that was uh, from a company from California. So we had two people from California to do the initial training. And this was the training of trainers that was going on. And when we got to the lesson about um, the condom demonstration, you can tell the steps, but you can't actually demonstrate them. And the person who was doing the training for us used her hands like she was a hand talker so she was pantomiming the steps and someone from the uh, state department said that you can't do that so she had her hands behind her back giving out the steps to putting on a condom so we were joking around just thinking like what can we do to make fun of this and you know this is completely tongue-in-cheek um so we uh, came up with the idea why don't we use a sock and protect your feet (laughs) so um Luckily, somebody who was working with that training was also an Auburn alum. And I felt like, you know, she was a she was a War Eagle girl. I was a Plainsman. So I think there was that bond. So when I asked her, I need you to record this, she did it. Love that Auburn spirit. So uh, we recorded it and um, I posted it on YouTube and I posted it on Facebook thinking that it was just going to be a joke. We're just laughing about this. Just the, the craziness of our law and... It goes viral, and then next thing you know, 2015, it goes viral again. And it was right around the time I decided that I was going to run for uh, the state legislature. And I'm one of the few people that you'll ever meet who had a YouTube video go viral right after I filed to run for office. And everybody was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I actually got donations because of that video. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it worked out for me. So, yeah. And yeah. then it really went viral. It blew up uh, when uh, when I got a call uh, from a producer from the from last week tonight with John Oliver, and um, got to see that video, and a lot of other people shared it. It was fun to hear a friend from London, you know, say that she was at her office and somebody shared the video, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I know that guy." <laughs> I was right. like, "Wow!" So yeah. Did the sock demonstration get picked up in schools? There are a lot of schools that that picked it up. And and again, like it wasn't that wasn't the intent to like, here's this video that you could use to sort of get around it. Um, I just thought it was just a funny way to make fun of our crazy law. But I have noticed that there have been other people who made videos and I was hoping that people would use this as an opportunity to like what other fun ways can we like make fun of our state law. Like maybe you could protect your hands by using an oven mitt. You can protect your golf clubs by using one of those little socks that you put over the one, one that Tiger Woods has. It yeah. looks like a tiger. I love that one. So yeah, I was hoping that there'd be more videos, but. Yeah, I, my favorite part is when you say like, I don't care what kind of shoe activity. Whatever kind of shoe activity. Yeah, yes. like you're so <laughs> sex positive in that for anyone's thing, but like, any shoe activity. As long as you're protected, just do you. Right. Yeah. Sandal, dress shoe. Hi, my name is Sanford Johnson. I'm here in sex ed training right now. Uh, we've been training folks on draw the line, respect the line, as well as reducing the risk. One of the major issues that we're having is that we're teaching uh, teens, we're, we're going to teach teens how to use condoms correctly and consistently. However, we cannot do condom demonstrations. So I decided to do something else. I want to teach kids how to put on a sock. If you're going to be engaged in a sock activity, whether you're wearing an athletic shoe or whether you're using a dress shoe, it doesn't matter to me as long as your foot is protected. I want to make sure that you have on a sock. So if I'm putting on a sock, what I do is I start with a sock and I want to pinch out the the air out of the tip of the sock because I want to make sure that there's room for my toes when I'm engaging in a shoe activity. 
And then I take the sock and I put it on top of my foot, and all I do is just roll it down. Just roll it down. Now, some people stop right here and just only, only put that sock on halfway. To go back to some of the um, other educational reform issues, I know that you are someone who really realized in Mississippi, if we're, charter schools are coming whether like people want them or not, right? It is a model of education. And so you're someone who really was on the ground saying, okay, if this can help us, how can we actually make it help us rather than it be irresponsible kind of corporate vanity projects into education, which, it, right, that's the spectrum. And so in your opinion, um, what do charter schools bring to the picture for Mississippi? And how did you work to make sure there was responsible growth in this education market in the state? So I was able to do a lot of work on that issue during my 10 years at Mississippi First. In fact, I think that was one of the first issues that we picked up. Um, and you're exactly right. You know, we knew that they were coming to Mississippi. Um, we knew that it was a it was a trending policy tool uh, that was providing access to high quality schools for students if it was done correctly. So I think that was one of the reasons why we got involved and essentially saying like, we know this is coming, so let's come up with some policy choices that will allow our sector to be a high performing sector that is actually gonna bring a positive uh, outcome for students. And um, some of the research that was out of course, charters were a complete mixed bag across the country, but the key difference was state policy. So if you have a strong, if you have strong state policies, strong state laws that um, set very high standards for who gets to open and where you get to open and who you actually get to serve, you tend to have better schools as opposed to states that are like the Wild West and you just allow anybody to open, like just anybody with Microsoft Word can open up a school. Um, those places that have very loose standards tend to open up a lot of bad schools. You may also get some good schools, but you're also gonna hurt a lot of kids in the process. And we knew that with Mississippi being a state with not a lot of resources, we need to make sure that we got it right because we, don't, we can't afford to open up bad schools here. We just don't have the resources to put into schools that are not gonna be effective. So, you know, the decision to have just one authorizer, one high performing authorizer, the decision to not allow our private academies to reconstitute themselves as charters, um, putting restriction on for profit schools. Those are some of the decisions that were made early on and having a very rigorous application process. So one of the uh, jobs that I was able to do uh, was to review applications and to work with applicants and to give them feedback, give them some tough love sometime and to be able to say like, like this, this section right here is not good and you're gonna have to fix it. And not saying like it's not good because I personally don't think it's good is because I don't think you're gonna get approved with the way you structured your application right now and being able to provide that support. Um, at the end of the day, like I think at this moment, there are six schools that are open in the state of Mississippi. Um, five of them are in Jackson. There's one in the Delta and full disclosure, my wife actually operates the one here in the Delta. but. You know, there's a mixed bag. Like there are certain schools that, you know, came out of the gate and had had good first years, had strong teams, put together a good plan. 
um, may not have had the best results in the beginning, but you can see that these schools have grown over time. There have also been some schools that have had some challenges, either because their plan wasn't as strong in the very beginning, or maybe you didn't hire the right principal uh, at the very beginning. And those schools may not be where they need to be right now. But um, part of our focus in terms of folks who support charters in the state of Mississippi is to make sure that we maintain high standards. Let's provide support for people who are interested in opening schools. Let's provide support for people who do open schools. But at the same time, we need to make sure that the accountability stays there because at the end of the day, you are being held responsible for educating kids. And that's the expectation. And if you don't educate kids, then you're going to have to close your school or you're going to have to make some drastic changes. Before charters enter the market in Mississippi, so you have a public school system that has a lot of challenges. And then you also have in the Southeast the history of segregation academies and, you know, all of the problems when desegregation pretends to happen that where money and resources get allocated in the public school system and where people end up in private schools because they're white parents largely who don't want their kids to be in desegregated schools so how does the charter work in supplementing the public school system what are what was happening in the public school system and how do they avoid the pitfalls of the history of private schools in mississippi that were workarounds of desegregation? So one of the big fears um, when the charter school legislation got passed here was that these are going to be the new segregation academies, that these were going to be the new schools that white families were going to pull their kids out of these private schools and go to. Um, One interesting thing about a lot of our private schools in Mississippi is that you know, a lot of them are not doing well. A lot of them don't have access to good resources because, like, where's the money? Like, the wealth is left. Um, So a lot of these schools are struggling. And there was a lot of fear that this could be seen as a way for us to, for a way for white families to be able to, you know, have a publicly funded school with the demographics that they were comfortable with. So there were some parts of the law that were created specifically to prevent that from happening. So uh, one example is that private schools cannot reconstitute themselves. So if you were on a uh, private school board, if you're a private school leader, you are not allowed to apply for a charter. Also, um, the there was a there was a part of the law that uh, made sure that a charter school's enrollment closely reflected the enrollment of the district school that where the charter was located. Um, So what you would have is that it has to be within 80%. So if you have a school that is 100% African-American, 100% students who are eligible for free and reduced lunch, then your school has to be at least 80% free and reduced lunch. And by doing that, it avoided some of the concerns. It addressed a lot of the concerns that people had about the sector and who was going to be served by the schools that were created. How have and what do the charter schools bring to assist the existing public school system? Like, what were the challenges there? Were there people who felt like, well, instead of going in this charter route, could we just like pull these resources into improving the public schools? Like, what 
what's the landscape there and how has the way that y'all have handled charter school policy helped or contributed? So I think it really depends on the community environment. Um, I think that if you have an environment where it's either or, then there are not a lot of opportunities for collaboration and figuring out like what are some common challenges that we need to work on. Um, You really get like, this is my team and that's your team. And there's a lot of tension there. Um, We're hoping that we can create an environment that's more of a both and where you're, you may go to this school and you may go to that school, but we're gonna coexist. We're gonna work, we're gonna find opportunities to work together. There may be some training that you do that I wanna participate in. You may have some trainings that I wanna participate in. So um, there could be some opportunities for two different sectors to coexist, just like the way two school districts would work together and coexist. But at the same time, you have to be you have to be realistic about the fact that when a parent is deciding that I'm going to take my child out of one school and put them in another school, then there are going to be some consequences for that. There is going to be an impact on that. Um, what I've seen around this area is that there are a lot of families, if you can afford it, who are sending their kids to other places. So you can talk to families who sent their kids to you know, the Presbyterian school or the Catholic school or the private school, or they work here but live somewhere else, or they make a commute uh, to send their kids somewhere else. So folks who have the means to afford it have been taking advantage of opportunities to give their kids better educations for years. And it's only recently that we're talking about allowing lower income families the opportunity to do the exact same thing. And now that lower income families are getting that same opportunity, now there are concerns about, oh, but the impact on districts and all of that. I think it really does need to be a both and um, situation though, where yes, let's provide opportunities for parents who need and want them. Yet at the same time, that doesn't excuse us from doing everything that we can to improve the quality of our existing school districts because no matter if there's a charter school in your community or not, there's still going to be a public school district. There's still going to be hundreds, if not thousands of kids who attend those schools in that district every single day. And if you want a strong community, those kids need to be educated too. So you can't just, well, I'm going to put all my eggs in the charter basket and forget about the school district. It has to be a both and. So over the last 15 years of doing this work in the state, what have you seen as the changes in Mississippi's education system that you're proud of or where do you think there have been changes that we still need some work in this area? Sure. So uh, in the 10 years that I spent at uh, Mississippi First, I was really excited about a lot of the work that I was able to be a part of. Um, so in, you, you can look around this community and see it. So there's state-funded pre-K here and we didn't have pre-K for so long. We were the, one of the last states that have a state-funded pre-kindergarten program. And we did it through a collaboration with school districts and Head Start and private child care centers. So it's great to see that here. Um, I was a part of the work around uh, getting sex ed here. So to see, so to see people that are taking those sex ed classes in middle school and high school, and to see how that project has grown. Um, there's a CDC funded project right here in the Mississippi Delta, um, these northern counties where we're working on providing training for health centers so they'll be youth friendly 
and working with youth serving organizations to make sure that they're per providing referrals and making sure that kids are connected to these centers. This could be a model for how we provide healthcare to young people across the country, especially in rural places. So I'm really excited about that work. And then I'm still a part of the sex ed training cadre. So I still get to train teachers that work across the state. Um, and then when it comes down to our charter sector, I think there are a lot of things that we've done right. Um, I think that we have put policies in place that have prevented us from opening a lot of bad schools. But I think we need to do more around providing more support for applicants and for schools, while at the same time making sure that it's still a both and. So there are certain things that we need to fix across the board. So we need to have a more equitable funding system to make sure that the kids who need more get more. We also need to do more to improve, like in, it, we need to do more to get uh, great teachers in the classroom. Um, there's a lot of work that's happening within our Department of Education. I know that Mississippi First is doing some work right now. I know there's some stuff that's happening within schools and school districts. So we need to figure out a way to better train teachers. We need to get more folks interested in the teaching profession. There are also a lot of people who are stuck in this, I don't want to say purgatory, but you're stuck in this middle area where you graduated from college, but for some reason you can't pass the praxis or there's some barriers that are keeping you from becoming a fully licensed teacher. And there's some efforts right now to try to get teachers over the hump so they can actually become fully licensed teachers. And so I'm, I'm excited about all the work that's happening in that area. I'm hoping that we haven't missed our opportunity to get funding right. And I think it's gonna take a couple of elections and it's gonna take an engaged public to really hold elected officials accountable to make sure that we get the funding that kids deserve. Thanks for listening this week. And we'd like to thank Samford for joining us for this episode. We'd also like to thank all of the wonderful people who welcomed us into Clarksdale. Join us next week when we'll be talking to Samford about other current events in Mississippi, including the recent ice raids in Jackson, as well as the vandalism of the Emmett Till historical marker. We'll also talk to him about the 2020 Democratic primary and how a candidate knows when it's time to leave the stage. In the meantime, if you want to hear Sanford and I talk about the connection between being an Auburn fan and being a Democrat, head over to our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can find our new not-so-secret football podcast under the Learn tab. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajua Danto are my co-producers, and Jessica Parker is an assistant producer this season. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you're so inclined, you can give us some of your hard-earned money that we promise to use to bring you more content. We have a Patreon page and a support tab on our website. We'll see you next week with part two of our episode with Sanford. Until then, take care.